It's really fun to be with you guys. It's been a, it's been a joy. I can't, you know, it, the time just moves so quickly. We're coming to our last, uh, last session, and uh, it's been a great time. It's been encouraging to be hearing the Word together, to worship together, to converse together. So um, I'm, I'm hopeful that the Lord is speaking to you, that you're being encouraged. And uh, I want to draw your attention to our text, John 14, verse 6. And we read, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So we, we've talked about Jesus being the way. We talked about Jesus being the truth. And I've been assigned to talk about this idea of Jesus being the life. And uh, this word life, it's, it, it's interesting, um, at least to me, <laughs> maybe it's not interesting to you, but it's interesting to me that the, uh, the Bible was written in a language that predates the Bible. Uh, in terms of, I'm talking about the New Testament. So, so when God chose to reveal himself to us and our relationship, he chose a language that was in existence, and he chose a language that, that, um, had, that uh, philosophers had discussed the actual meaning of the concepts of words for generations. And so these words that are chosen to represent something are words that are packed with meaning. And so we come here to this word, it's the word life, and it's a translation of the Greek word zoe. Do we have any zoes in the room? My name is Zoe, some life in the room. So that's the, the word life. And it's a, it's a word that speaks of, of sort of the, the state of being alive or, or philosophers, scientists would use the term animated something that is animated. It's, it's in contrasting to, to something that is inanimate. So we have, you know, we have a, a rock or a pile of dirt or, or something even may have the, the physical appearance of being alive. Like when you take a, a stone and you carve it into the image of a person or an animal, it's still inanimate. It doesn't have life in it. Um, we talked today about, about animatronics, right? So you, you take something that is inanimate. It doesn't have life in it, but, but you do something to it to give it lifelike character traits. So you're on that little boat going on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, and you see the little Johnny Depp character, right? And it's an inanimate object. It's animatronics. It's not really alive. There's not really life in it. It's, there's something missing from it. In fact, the, the capacity to put life into something that doesn't have life is not within the, the realm of, like, of human authority. Like God has never given that to mankind. God's the one who's able to actually put life into something. So the, this word, he chooses a word, it carries the idea of something that has life in it. It's something that is distinct from something that doesn't have life in it. But Jesus would sort of qualify this when he talked about it. Jesus talked a lot about life, and Jesus would qualify it in a pretty um, famous passage in John chapter 10, where Jesus says, the thief has come to steal from you, 
and to kill you and ultimately to destroy you. That's a warning, correct? Like, ah, you want to avoid that guy. He wants to steal from you, wants to kill you, wants to destroy you. He says, but I've come that you might have, what? Life, and that you might have it. He qualifies that life. He says, and I want you to have it abundantly. And, and the word abundantly is, is the idea of something being superior or above. Uh, one, one individual commentating on the meaning of that word abundantly is he said it was something that means even to be uncommon. It's an uncommon thing. It's, a, it's something that we might know that it exists, but we don't see it very often. And that's interesting, even like when it comes to some of the words that these Greek philosophers would, they're, they're trying, the, the word captures a meaning or a, or a concept, and they would discuss these things. And some of the things they talked about were things that we, we know it's there, but we don't really see a lot of it. One of the more, one of the, maybe a, the most vivid example of that would be that word that is so common to our vernacular as Christians, the word love, that's the translation of that word agape. And we understand that, don't we? Like you've experienced agape. You experienced it when you first met Jesus. You experienced it when you first became part of the family of God. It was something that caught, like you came into this group of people and you had this, this love experience that you'd never had anywhere else. You didn't experience it anywhere else. It's like, it's a, it's a very common thing within Christendom, within relationship with Christ. But the Greek philosophers, when they talked about it, they talked about it kind of this idea of we know it's there. We just don't really have any way to illustrate it because we don't actually see it. And when Jesus uses this word abundant, this superior life, He's, it, it kind of carries the idea of, it's like, I, I've come for you to have a life that, well, it, it might not be common. You might not see other people having this life. You, you might not know others that have experienced it, but, but do you understand? I want you to have a life. There's, that's what Jesus is talking about. It's, a, it's the life that's found in Christ. Um, from a, maybe a theological or a biblical standpoint, we might define it as experiencing the purpose for which we were created. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he's saying this life, this kind of idea is a person experiencing the purpose for which they were created. I'm going to give you a terrible example um, I'm, or illustration. I'm really good at that. I've got a, a whole like library in my mind of bad examples. So um, I want you to imagine, uh, imagine two people and uh, they both determine that it's a good idea to purchase a boat. They live right next door to each other. They live on the water. They have a dock. And so the one individual purchases his boat. The second individual purchases the exact same boat. And the one individual, that boat sits there on the dock. It sits, it's, it, it experiences the weather. Its canvas begins to discolor. It begins to rot and tear. It begins to, it's covered with the elements, the dirt. Uh, the bottom of it begins to be filled with barnacles. It's just sitting there. The second individual purchases the same boat, but that boat is, is filled with fishing gear. It's filled with water sports, paraphernalia, 
on the weekend, it's filled with friends and family members, and, it's, and the sound of laughter and children being whipped on inner tubes behind the boat and flying off of it. And you look at it and you say, well, there's these two boats. One of them, I think, is kind of experiencing that which it was designed for. The other boat is just existing. And kind of the idea of this, this abundant life that Jesus is referring to, it's that kind of idea, like what we have actually been designed for, why we were created. And so in the passage, Jesus says, I am the way, talked about, he's that gate, that doorway, the, the one way in which fallen humanity can be restored back to God. He's the truth. He's the, the, the one thing by which we can measure everything else that we hear um, is, is measuring it against what the Bible teaches us. But he's also, he says, the life. Something Jesus is saying is there, there's, it's more than existence. It's more than just simply being animated. It's more than simply bringing uh, air into my lungs and food into my body and, and, and participating in culture or whatever. It's, it's I'm actually experiencing the purpose for which God created me. So what I want to attempt to do in our time together is I want to attempt to to answer a couple of questions. And the first one would simply be, where is this life found? Like if, the, if this thing is something, if the philosophers are, are talking about it and they're saying, there is this thing called Zoe, there is this thing called life, there is this thing where, where a, a person can live above just common experience and can actually live for that which they were designed for, how do we find that? Like, where, where is that located? And I'd like to suggest to you, according to Jesus, that first of all, that life is found in a person. That life is found in a person. It, it would be impossible for us to find the life that the Bible is talking about separated from the person of Jesus. Again, Jesus says, I am the life. I'm gonna to read to you a, a slew of verses. I'll give you the references if you're interested in looking them up later. But in John chapter six, Jesus said, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In John six, at verse 47, Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. John 17, verse three, Jesus says, this is eternal life. That, you may know, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. The Apostle John, over 40 times in the Gospel of John, refers to this life that is found in Jesus. Uh, he says this in John 3, verse 36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. In 1 John chapter 5, John writes, this is the testimony that God has given us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. In the close of his gospel, John 20 at verse 31, he says, these things, the, the stories that I chose to record the, from all of the things that Jesus did and all the things that Jesus taught. He said, these ones were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life 
in his name. Peter, Peter on one occasion, as people were departing from Jesus because the road became more challenging, and Jesus says to Peter, he says, are you gonna leave? And Peter says, where else can I go? You alone have the words of life. He says, I know there's only one place I can go to find life. It's in you, Jesus. Paul said this to Timothy. He wrote 2 Timothy 1 at verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. So according to the Bible, first of all, there is this thing called life. It's more than being animated. It's more than being alive. It's more than making you distinct from, from something that does not have life, more than makes you distinct from Johnny Depp animatronics. It's this actual life, the, the abundant life that Jesus spoke of, the purpose for which God created you. And the place to find that, according to the Bible, is in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, the reason that this cannot be found apart from Jesus, and the reason it is found in Jesus is because of what happens when you and I encounter Jesus, when we meet Jesus. When we meet Jesus, the Bible tells us that we are reborn. The Bible speaks of something called regeneration that takes place or, or a renewal that happens within us. When the Bible describes our condition prior to our encounter by faith in the work of Jesus on the cross, the Bible describes our condition as being dead. And it's talking not about the fact that we are not animated. It's not talking about the fact that we don't have air in our lungs. It's talking about this fact that, that a part of us, I would say that perhaps, the, I would say that the most important part of us, the part of us that makes us distinct from all other creative beings upon the planet. It's that spiritual part of us. And that's something that sin killed. You remember the story in the garden. God says, the day that you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will die. And they partake of the fruit of that tree. Do you, do you, do you read the story, do they die? I mean, is, there's the storyline, Eve takes a bite, starts to convulse, foaming at the mouth, falls down on the ground, she's wiggling, and then stops breathing. And Adam thinks, that looks awesome. <laughs> that was unbelievable. Where's the rest of that fruit? Hey, and she, he dives in. Is that the storyline? No, they, they, after partaking of it, they continue to exist for, for decades, long period of time. They, they have children and grandchildren and life experience, but something in them died. There was a spiritual death that happened and a separation that took place between them and God. Meeting Jesus, we are born again. We are renewed. We are regenerated. That part that died when sin entered the world, that part is reborn within us. We'd say that the, the ultimate experience of being human happens to us when we put faith in Jesus Christ. So we talk about this idea like, how is it that life is experienced when a person comes to faith in Jesus Christ? It's because of what happens when you come to faith in Jesus Christ. You're, you come alive. 
That part of you, the, 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 the greatest distinction between us and any other creative being is that part that we are able to have relationship with God, and that came alive within us. And so suddenly, this, this, this awareness and this ability to experience life the way God intended it is born into you the moment that you're born again. It's unbelievable. So that, why is life found in Jesus? Because it's only Jesus that can make you alive spiritually. And that life, what happens is, is then the, 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 the capacities, well, let me rephrase it. This also, not only are you reborn or regenerated or renewed, but we're also restored into relationship with God. Some of the language that's used to describe our condition before putting faith in Christ is language that, that implies this great distance between us and God, that we were separated from him. Paul, Paul would write to the Ephesians and talk about how we were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and that we were strangers from the covenant of promise and that we were without hope and without God in this world. And he's, he's describing this great distance, this barrier between man and God. And when we put faith in Jesus Christ, we are united again to God. So we're brought into relationship. Jesus would use such vivid imagery when Jesus would say, I'm the vine and you are the branches. And he says, he says he, he's talking about a permanent union that takes place the moment you put faith in Jesus Christ. That happened. So whatever your story is, whatever it looked like, that you were invited forward at the end of a, of a church service to pray and receive Christ, or you were sitting in a car with a friend who had encountered Jesus and told their story to you and you prayed to receive Christ, or it was in a, in a quiet moment of contemplation after hearing so many things and you made that decision. What happened, according to the Bible, is that a permanent, unbreakable union took place between you and God. You were grafted into the vine. You were connected to him. And you're connected to a life source that is God. And so Jesus would go on in that passage after illustrating himself as the vine and illustrating us as the branches, he would go on to talk then about character traits that would begin to be developed in you that weren't in you before. He'd call them fruit. He'd say, oh, you get to bear fruit. And you get to bear more fruit. And you get to bear much fruit. And that fruit's gonna bring glory to God. To see what, how is it that this life, Zoe, this uncommon experience, this experience that, that people are like, I know it's there, I just don't necessarily see it or I'm not necessarily experiencing it. How do I experience it? How do I find the purpose for which God created me? Well, I'm born again. That part of me that was dead has come to life and I'm put in an unbreakable union with God and God is a source who is able to produce traits in me that didn't exist before. That's amazing. That's what God does. And so there's this life. It's, and so suddenly it's like, you've, maybe you've struggled with life. You've had struggle with identity. You've had struggle with anxiety. You've had struggles with self-worth. And then you come and you enter into a relationship with Jesus and now there's this life source and God's starting to produce things in you that weren't there before. 
And suddenly it's like, and, and there's this weird thing, it's part of human, it's not you, it's us. Okay, so, that, you know, like that dating thing. It's not you, it's, or it's not me, it's you. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> it's not you, it's us. And, and that is there's something in us where we, we kind of like to lean into to things that are even unhealthy for us because they give us some level of comfort. They've always kind of been part of us. And so for some of us, we've had struggles with identity or self-worth or anxiety or that type of stuff. It's been part of our life. We've met Christ, and Christ is starting to produce new character traits in us that that stuff is actually getting pushed out or replaced, but we're still kind of holding on to it because we don't know us apart from it. Can I encourage you to just let Jesus produce those fruits in you? Let him keep doing that work. But so, so here's my point thus far. There is something called life. There is something called life. It's, an, it's, it's, the, it's the purpose for which God created us. And that life is something that is found in the person of Jesus. And it's found in the person of Jesus because when you meet Jesus, that part of you that was dead, the most important part of you, has come to life. And you're able to have relationship with God. And that relationship with God puts you in an unbreakable union with God where God is able to produce things in you that never existed before. And that production is something that will continue on for the rest of your life. It's God just working the character traits of Jesus into your life, growing and developing. There's a passage in the book of Ephesians. I, I love it. I don't know if it makes sense. But it says that we are growing to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So how many of you growing up, your parents had that growth chart on the wall that it had the little line, your head mark, and had the date, right? And then it had your siblings. Okay, I grew up, I have, I have two brothers. I'm the middle one, that explains a lot. And uh, especially when you watch home videos. But um, anyway... So, and we had this growth chart. My older brother's name is Sean, so in the growth chart, Sean was always here. My younger brother, his name is Colin, and he was always here. And then Jim was here. No, you should sigh. So, listen, <laughs> I literally grew up wearing my little brother's hand-me-downs. Okay, I'm gonna say that again, in case you weren't listening. I grew up wearing my little brother's hand-me-downs, okay? He's two years younger than I am. I'm in fourth grade, and I'm wearing his clothes. So, but you get the, like, there's, and so my goal, like, you know, my goal was not to be 6'5". My goal was just to be taller than my little brother. <laughs> like, that was just my goal. My lifelong dream, he's 6'1". So... <laughs> <laughs> but you, so here's my point in all of that. I think I have one. And that is, there's this work that God's doing. We're in this union with Christ where he's producing these things in us, and he's producing them until we come to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We're continuing to grow to become more like him. There's this thing called life. And we experience it when we're in relationship with Jesus. And apart from Jesus, we'll never experience that. 
But I, I think the Bible goes beyond that. And I would say, secondly, that if we want to experience this life, we have to recognize that this life is not only found in a person, but this life is also found in a practice. Uh, in, in other words, the, the life that God intends for us, the, this zoe, the, the, what Jesus called abundant life, experiencing the purpose for which God created us is something that's found in Jesus, that we can't find it apart from him, but it's also found in practice. This life is found in a certain lifestyle, in living a certain way. Let me read to you a couple of passages. I, I think they, they probably will be familiar to you. The first one is Psalm 1. Psalm 1 begins this way. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does will prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like chaff, which the wind blows away. Now, I think that, that it's important for us to understand the first audience for which this was written. That the truth of this passage would be true if, if the psalmist were standing in Philistia and declaring it to the inhabitants of Gath. It would be true if he were standing in Egypt and sharing it with the Pharaoh. It would be true if he were in Babylon and in Nebuchadnezzar's court. But this is the songbook of Israel. These are the people of God. These are people who, if, we're gonna, if we were to use New Testament language, these are people who have already met Christ, people who are already in a union with Christ. Now, again, it's Old Testament, so we understand these are people who have already embraced, embraced the fact that Yahweh, Jehovah, is the true and living God, and they're living in covenant relationship with him. And, and the, the first psalm opens reminding the people that there's a way of life that leads to fruitfulness. The imagery, it's beautiful, isn't it? A tree planted by the rivers of water, bearing fruit, its, its leaves are not withering. And then the other imagery, so dark, the ungodly, like the chaff blown away by the wind. But he's saying there's a lifestyle, like you, you choose to walk in a certain way and you experience the life that God intends for you. And if you choose to walk in a different way, you're gonna be robbed of the life that you have been united to Christ in order to experience. But listen to what Jeremiah wrote. He's even more vivid. This is Jeremiah 17, starting at verse five. Jeremiah says, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man who makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord, he will be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in the salt land, which is not inhabited. Blessed is the man who trusts the Lord, who puts hope in the Lord. He shall be like a tree planted by waters, which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes. Its leaf is green and he'll not be anxious in the drought, nor will he cease from yielding fruit. That's, that's vivid, isn't it? 
You're painting a picture. It's like, hey, here's life. On the one hand, you've got this lush tree bearing fruit in a beautiful environment. On the other hand, you have a shrub in the desert. <laughs> you, look at like, that's, you look and go, I don't have to know much about botany. I don't want to be the shrub. That does not sound good to me. And that, so the, the, it's such vivid imagery, but the implication here is, listen, there's a way that we can live our lives where we experience the life that God intends for us, and there's a way that we can live our lives where that life is robbed from us. It, we find it's in the person of Jesus. I've walked through the gate. I've entered into a relationship with Jesus. But as a follower of Jesus, I need to recognize that Zoe, this life, this abundant life that God intends for us, is found in the person of Jesus, but it's also found living the lifestyle that God intends for us. Now, today is no different, but throughout the history of the church, there have been times where people have looked at what the Word of God has to say on certain subjects and sought to codify what it says into more simple documents. Uh, sometimes they're called creeds. And so we have, there's all discussion upon the person of Jesus and we have to go, no, 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 we have to qualify what the Bible says about the person of Jesus and we have to put it down into something, we have to codify it into something. So we come up with the Nicene Creed, right? Or before that, the Apostles' Creed. In the 1600s, there was something developed. It was the Church of England and the Church of Scotland, and they developed a teaching mechanism called the Westminster Catechism. And the Westminster Catechism was, it was taking what, like the big subjects of the Bible and narrowing them down in order to teach these values and principles to people. It's a beautiful way of, of, of communicating these biblical thoughts. I want to just read to you how the, how the Westminster Catechism or Short Catechism opens. It's, it's question and answer form. So it opens like this. What is the chief end of man? And the answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So they're seeking an answer. Why are we here? What's my purpose? Well, your purpose is to know God and, and enjoy him and glorify him. The second question. What rule has God given to direct us in how we glorify him and how we enjoy him? In other words, if, if my purpose is to know God and bring glory to God and enjoy God, is there any guideline on how I should go about doing that? Answer, the word of God is the only rule to direct us in how we may glorify and enjoy him. Third question, what do the scriptures principally teach? In other words, okay, well, if that's the case, what is the main thing this thing is telling me about how to know God and glorify him and enjoy him? Answer, the scriptures principally teach that man, what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. I think it's so fascinating here. You've got these guys, very intelligent people, Bible people. And they're looking and they're saying, it's so important for us to teach the coming generations who they are and who God is and how to live life 
and they codify it into this thing, and they ask this question, Why, what's our purpose? Know God, glorify him, enjoy him. How do I do that? Well, follow what the scriptures teach. Well, what does the scripture teach? Well, it teaches us the duty of man regarding God. So if we're going to experience abundant life, we have to learn to walk in the ways of God. Think about Jesus' language. This was uh, referred to in our first lesson, um, Travis taught. I'm going to tie my shoes so I don't end up doing that falling thing. Uh, Listen to, this is from Matthew 7. Travis referred to it. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in it. But narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Now, it's interesting to me how this whole message, this is part of a longer conversation Jesus is having with the disciples. But it starts, Jesus looks out at the multitude, and he has a heart for the multitude, so he calls the disciples together. They had a retreat on a hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee. It's Jesus with the disciples, and he's instructing them in the way of life. And then he warns them about the fact that there are lanes in life. There's narrow lanes and there's wide lanes. And in in, in a sense, he's saying, listen, if we're going to experience the life that God intends, we need to stay in the right lane, right? And, and, And sort of this... In, in, in sort of a, a broad stroke, this message would be saying, listen, the way into life is putting faith in Jesus Christ, and no other road's going to lead to that. But his initial audience is people who have already made that decision. And so there's at least the warning here that it's possible to, to even as a follower of Jesus, get out of the lane. So we might think of our life and following Jesus, and the, the Word of God creates a lane for us. It says, this is how we're supposed to live. And if I want to experience the life that God has for me, I have to stay within that lane. If I step out of the lane, I'm stepping away from the road that's going to take me to experiencing the life that God intends for me. We have to recognize that there are lanes. Listen to what Peter wrote, First Peter 3. He says, he who would love life and see good days... Let him, retain, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. He says, listen, you, you want to love life and see good days? Stay away from that and follow this. In, in Matthew uh, chapter 19, Jesus is having a conversation with the rich young ruler. You remember the story? Good teacher, what must I do to to receive or to inherit eternal life. Why do you call me good? No one's good but God alone. And then he says, he asks him regarding the commandments. And then, but Jesus says this one. He says, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. Is Jesus telling him that the way to Zoe, the way to life is obeying a set of rules? No. Life is found in a person. Right? That's clearly taught by Jesus. But at the same time, even a person who is in a relationship with Jesus can miss out on the life that God has for us by stepping outside of the lane, 
by living in disobedience to the commandments of God, to the instructions of Scripture. And we can go from, from what God intends, a tree planted by rivers of water, lush and fruitful, to becoming a shrub in the desert because we've stepped outside of the lane. So our first point is that life is found in a person. Our second point is life is found in a way of life. It's found in following the instruction given to us within the Word of God. Here's my third point, and that is that the Bible writers actually believe that you could build your life upon the teaching of Scripture. They actually believe that. They actually believe that if you, if you want to have zoe, if you want to have this abundant life, that you are to build your life upon the teaching of Scripture. Again, David made reference to this at the close of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He gave an illustration. He said, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, says, he's like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And then he describes vividly some of the challenges of life as a storm that's hitting. It says, but, but this house did not fall because it was founded upon the rock. Jesus is saying, you can actually build your life upon the teaching of God's word. That it's a, it's a base that, that can handle it. Psalm 125, verse 1, those who trust the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. That, that verse is just so vivid because, because the city that's set on top of Mount Zion has crumbled a lot of times. But the mountain itself, the rock itself, it hasn't gone anywhere. It's so solid, such a foundation. In Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds a house, those who labor do so in vain. Unless the Lord guards a city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. And so the idea, the, the Bible writers, they actually believe if you want to experience life, because life is found in the person of Jesus and life is found in following the, the, the instructions of Scripture, you can actually build your life on the foundation of God's Word. Every aspect of your life. Do you know that the Bible actually addresses every aspect of life? The Bible addresses you personally, like you as an individual, privately, that, that aspect of life that, that, that not even the person closest to you is involved in, your personal private life. The Bible tells us what to do with our thoughts. The Bible tells us like that it warns us of the danger of, of, of thinking of the wrong things and the value of thinking upon the right things. In, the, in, in Philippians chapter four, there's that wonderful passage where, where Paul says, hey, whatever things are pure and just and praiseworthy and honest and of good report, he says, think on these things. The Bible's actually, tell, like when you're, when you are, what did you call it? You got latte'd? So Travis and Maddie with, with all this bravado last night about 10.30, standing in the back leaning against the wall, kind of like this coffee in hand. 
I'm looking with these eyes filled with covetousness. And, uh, and they're like, yeah. And I go, you can drink coffee this late? He goes, yeah, no problem. Doesn't affect me. Two o'clock? Was it two o'clock in the morning? They look over at each other, eyes like this, <laughs> bouncing around, <laughs> like, <laughs> like wide awake. He walks in the morning looking like that and, and says, uh, says, I got latte'd. <laughs> That's a great line. I got latte'd. So, you know, you're laying there, two o'clock in the morning, can't sleep. You know the Bible speaks to you? Tells you what to do with your thought life? War- like like, like you, can, you can think upon the things that will actually improve you. It warns you about holding on to things like bitterness and unforgiveness and, and going through. You know how sometimes we'll lay there and think about that conversation that we had this person said this, and we didn't know what to say, but an hour later, we know what to say. <laughs> oh, do we know what to say? <laughs> like, say, like, we're ready now. So you're laying in bed wishing you had the rewind button, wishing you could go back and unload that barrage upon them. Like, that's not healthy. The Bible actually addresses, the Bible tells us what to do with every member of our body. Paul talks about how prior to meeting Christ, he refers to uh, our, the, the members of our body as instruments. And he, and he talks about how we used to use them as, as these instruments for sin. And he says, but now we should use them as instruments for righteousness. And the Bible tells us what to do with our eyes. Job said, I'll make a covenant with my eyes that I won't look upon a woman. The, the tells me what to do with my mouth. What kind of things are appropriate to talk about and what kind of things are inappropriate to talk about. What to do with my ears? What things I should listen to? The Bible tells us to, it warns us, be careful. These are the words of Jesus. Be careful or take heed to what you hear. Bible tells us what to do with our hands, what to do with our feet, where where our legs should take us, warns us against the the places that our, our legs shouldn't take us. Like the Bible actually addresses every aspect of our life. The Bible addresses your singleness. The Bible addresses if you are single and single, okay? If you're single and single, and the Bible also addresses you if you're single and in a relationship. And what I mean by that is unmarried. So if you're single and single, the Bible tells you what to do. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Don't, the Bible never tells you to seek a spouse, okay? I will just seek the Lord, trust the Lord, walk with the Lord, become the person that God is intending for you to become. If you're single in relationship, the Bible tells you how to live out that relationship and, and gives you instruction for what is proper in an unmarried relationship and what is improper in an unmarried relationship. You see, the Bible, the Bible writers actually believe that because life is found in Jesus and because life is found in the way that Jesus intends for us to live, that we can actually build our life upon Jesus. The Bible speaks to married, married people, how a husband should behave and how a wife should behave and what their relationship should be like. The Bible speaks of child rearing. The Bible speaks to to how to live in the workplace. The Bible even speaks to this, this dilemma that we find ourselves in of being citizens of heaven's kingdom while we're still living here. And the conflict that we're in, 
because of that? The Bible actually speaks to that. The Bible tells us how to win battles, not to wrestle with, with flesh and blood, but that the, the, the weapons of our warfare are mighty in God to pulling down of strongholds in the world. Never win a battle by getting in a yelling match with the world. But prayer and the word of God and righteous living is going to have a tremendous impact. The Bible addresses everything because the Bible writers really believe that we can build a life upon what the word of God teaches. Brings us to our next point, and that is this, that Satan always tries to get us to get out of our lane. Satan's always going to try to get us out of our lane. The Bible opens introducing us to God, then introduces us to man, and then answers the question of evil. How did, how did evil enter the world? How, how, why is it, you know, that, that age-old question, why do bad things happen to good people? The Bible answers it by the third chapter. Sin enters the world. Paul summed it up. He said, sin entered the world by one man, and sin spread to all men because all men have sinned. And death is the result. And so sin is the world. But the storyline as how this happened, it happened because the devil, the antagonist, the serpent, got the people, Adam and Eve, to question whether life would be found staying in their lane. He says, hey, here's, here's the garden. And here's what I want you to do in the garden. Like, here's, here's your existence here. And in the garden, there's one tree. And in the, on this tree is the, the, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And you're not to partake of that fruit because if you partake of that fruit, you're going to die. Enters the antagonist. Enters the devil. And what does the devil say? You're not going to die. In fact... If you eat of the fruit of that tree, you are going to experience real life. This is where life's actually going to be found. Your, your eyes are going to be opened, and you're going to become like God. The height of life, the greatest experience you'll ever have is disobeying God, stepping out of the lane and doing that. I, I don't remember which commentator it was. I read it a while ago, but, it, but one person wrote... Billions upon billions of graves scattered across the planet attest to the fact that God tells the truth and Satan is a liar. Right? I mean, it's like he's saying, essentially, here's what the enemy's saying God has said, I created you, you're in a relationship with me, you will experience life staying in this lane. Enter the devil, step out of the lane. And this is where you'll really find life enjoyment. And who is telling the truth? And what does is, what is empirical data tell us? That the devil is lying. And he's it, the same process as today. In every area, in your, in your private life. Your life that no one else sees but you. There's the, there's the serpent still whispering. If you step out of this lane... If you, if you get involved in things in your private life that God doesn't want you to get involved in, that's really going to give you life. That's really going to satisfy. That's where you're going to really find enjoyment. But that's going to kill you in your, in your relationship life. We know this is the lane that God intends for us to live in. 
but we'll really, this, our relationship will really be better if we step outside of the lane and we behave how we shouldn't behave. That, or in, in any aspect of our life, Satan's constantly coming against this truth that life is found in obedience to what God teaches. And so we have to be aware that's just a reality. And it's not like, like hey, this is the young adult conference. Some of you guys, I was watching your behavior. You put the adult in young adult. So I'm proud of you. Others of you, not so much. But the... <laughs> But listen, it's not like, well, listen, you're young and you're going to get tempted. And the, your whole life, your whole life, the enemy's tactics are always the same. He wants you to step outside of the lane. And he's going to try to convince us that life is found outside of the lane. But the Bible clearly teaches us we find life in the person of Jesus and in the way of Jesus. That's where life is going to be found. Father, we're so thankful for your word we're so thankful for the time that we've been able to spend in it. And Lord, the reminders that you are the way and that you are the truth and that you are the life. And Lord, certainly it's, it's our desire to experience the life that you intend for us. Lord, we know that your word tells us that, that, we, were, that we were uniquely created in the womb and that we were recreated on the day that we put faith in Jesus Christ, and that you have a purpose and a plan for us. And we want to experience that. We don't want to be sidetracked. And so we pray, help us, Lord. Help us to walk carefully and closely abiding in you. In Jesus' name.